1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? I believe there's a hero in all of us. Gives us strength, makes us noble. Even though sometimes we have to give up the thing we want the most. Barker! Where you been? Looking for you all morning. You're late. Always late. You're fired. Look at your people. Your grades have been declining. You always appear exhausted. I know I'm trying. Where you been, pal? You don't return my calls. I've been kind of busy. Taking pictures of your friend. Spider-Man killed my father. No matter what I do. Do you love me or not? No matter how hard I try. I want Spider-Man dead. It's the ones I love who will always be the ones who pay. I can't keep thinking about you. I'm getting married. I want a life of my own. I'm Spider-Man. No more. You look different. I let things get in the way before. There was something I thought I had to do. I don't have to. I like seeing you tonight, Peter. Now on to the main event. Octavius is going to put Oscorp on the map in a way my father never even dreamed of. Crazy scientist turns himself into some kind of a monster. Four mechanical arms welded right onto his body. You take Spider-Man's pictures. Where is he? He's taking me off your loyalty to Spider-Man and not your best friend. Spider-Man to me. How do I find him? Peter Parker. Find Spider-Man, or I'll peel the flesh off her bones. There are bigger things happening here than me and you.
everybody and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro and I am joined today by my friend Jonathan Kreitz. Welcome hey, how's it going? It's going good. How you doing? Very, very good. I should say howdy. Sorry. Yes, yes. You got to get that Texas <laughs> in. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I almost feel like you have to be wearing a 10-gallon hat right now or, or something's not quite right. No doubt. I mean, uh, because every stereotype should come into play. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I don't wear regularly wear boots or a cowboy hat, although I was wearing a pearl snap shirt today. Uh, but the rodeo is coming up here soon. And what is so hilarious is rodeo in Houston is it's one of the biggest rodeos in the world. It's like three weeks long. It's a huge deal. And, uh, Everyone, it's like the one time a year that everyone actually goes full Texan, wears their boots, wears their hats. Yeah, uh, I'd be walking around with a pair of chaps on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, it, that you'd be surprised. Everyone's got their, you know, you go out to the rodeo and the people who are working the rodeo because it's all a volunteer run. All the people who are actually there helping you get around, they've got their dusters on, they've got their, you know, rawhide vests and their hats. I mean, it's a fun time. <laughs> you know, you might as well enjoy things, you know? Yep, yep. You can't take this stuff too seriously. But uh, regular listeners of the show will remember that John was on uh, in on episode 66, which was posted on January 20th, 2019, and we covered the original, well, the first Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. Yep. And we said then, yeah, we're going to do all these Spider-Man movies. And so a year has gone by and a couple of months have gone by. And lo and behold, we're doing Spider-Man 2 today. Woohoo! Yes. <laughs> I've been looking forward to it. I, it has. It has. But, you know, better late than never. And and uh, we'll maybe we'll get a little a little more timely with the rest of them. But I, I'm glad to be here. And I think we're going to have a good time talking about this great movie tonight. Yeah, and uh, you know what? I, I'm going to say right off the bat, I don't think that's hyperbole. Uh, I, I am a big fan of this movie. Yeah. I, when it came out, I kind of felt like it brought comic book movies to a level that they hadn't been to before. I'm trying to remember, because it was kind of this and X2 kind of simultaneously you know, move the bar a little bit. I would and, 100% agree with that. And I don't remember if this came first or that did. Uh, I think it days. might have been. I'm actually pulling up list of superhero movies this, because... This came out on, in June of 2004. I'm not sure about X2. Well, so I meant to pull this up earlier because part of the whole deal we were talking about with the... The first Raimi film was that it was, you know, it it was kind of ahead, ahead of its time in terms of you'd had in 2000, you'd had X-Men, or maybe it was 99. When was, when was the original X-Men? And you'd had Blade, and you'd had a few of these movies, but, you know, man, why can I not find? Hold on, sorry. Um... Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it – oh, that's why I'm in the wrong list. Um, there was a lot more. I mean, that first Spider-Man movie after the X-Men movie, after Blade, led to what I would call like the superhero boom part one. Mm -hmm. You know, you think of like Daredevil or the Ang Lee Hulk 
or you know that that era of movies pre MCU pre Dark Knight trilogy that first kind of era so I would like to see a list that put them all in context okay 2003 was Daredevil X2 and Hulk 2002 so did come before this yes 2004 was Punisher with Tom Jane Spider-Man 2 and Blade Trinity 2005 was Electra Fantastic Four, 2006 X-Men Last Stand. So that, you know. Well, I, I think that the movies kind of stayed at the same level. I th- as I said, I thought I think this one kind of, along with X2, kind of moved the bar up a little bit. And then I think eventually in 2008 when Iron Man came out, that moved the bar again. Right. Uh, but, at the, you know, at the time, this movie was at least – among the the best comic book movies ever. And I wasn't sure, it's been a little while since I rewatched it, and I wasn't sure how high I was going to hold it uh, in comparison to all the things that have come out since, because, again, the bar has continually moved. They've, they've gotten bigger, they've gotten more, uh, you know, more bombastic, and, uh, you know, they, they've done what I don't think many people thought they could do and they've created this whole universe with the Marvel, you know, movies, uh, much like the comic books that, you know, it's unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, but this movie again, going back to it, you know, it's on a smaller scale, although it is not a small scale movie. And, uh, it really does hold up. Well, that's really what I'm coming down to. Yeah. Uh, I, I, my opinion of this, has not really dropped considerably since it was originally out. Uh, in fact, I don't think it's dropped at all. I think I, I hold it in as high esteem as I did then. And I'm a little surprised at that. I thought I was, I thought it was going to feel a little dated 16 years after the fact. Which when you say that out loud, that is truly shocking 16 years, but wow. Well, so I, just like you, I thought I can remember seeing X2 and thinking, man, this is literally the superhero movie I've always wanted. You know, I thought I loved X2. I thought it was, you know, so cool the way it ended, the, just the story, the the cast. Great movie. But I didn't like X-Men, the first X-Men film, as much as I liked that original Raimi Spider-Man movie. I love that movie. So then I, the hype for me to see Spider-Man 2 was super high, and I agree with you. I saw it and thought it was just – it didn't just raise the bar. I felt like it was, you know, just so, so good. I was – what's funny, though, to me, I still, after rewatching, thought it was great. I don't know if it necessarily is quite as high as I probably would have placed it before. I mean, but what I liked about it, I think it still all rings true, but I think you're right. I don't know if it's, um, dated isn't the right word. I honestly look watching it. I guess I had forgotten how much it is almost like an evil dead two is to the original evil dead. It's almost to me a very much the same movie as the first Raimi Spider-Man, just better and bigger. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Well, but you know what? I'm going to say better, bigger, and also with, I believe, better character moments. Yes, 
Oh, and absolutely. That, that you know, that's really what always pulls it together. Because if, if you don't have those good character moments, you know, now you're talking about, uh, you know, something along the lines of the Transformer movies, you know, where, where it's it's all bombastic action, but no, you know, no depth to it. Yeah, no pathos, no, yeah. So, you know, this, this movie has that. And, you know, I think I, I've said, there hasn't been the perfect Peter Parker on film, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know what? He played the part well here. Uh, despite the fact that he isn't what I picture as Peter Parker, I think the part was well written. I think he acted it well. I think any any shortfall in his performance as Peter Parker is more just based on who he is than based on his performance. Yeah. I don't know if I and I I don't think I articulated this well in our first episode. I think this movie though was more what I had in mind in terms of the Peter Parker from the comics is always you know people say he's the everyman but he is just constantly beset by superhero problems, money problems, school problems, family problems, girlfriend problems. I mean just it's just a never-ending stream of, I don't want to say misery, but it's almost that, like, he's just always beset with things happening to him while he's trying to always also do the right thing. And I feel like the story captures that in this film, but Maguire himself really captures that just pulled in ten different directions better than the other actors that portray him so far, at least in my opinion. Yeah, no, I... I I think, and I think, you know, I have to put a lot of that to the script. I think the script of course, puts, of course. puts it together, but it, it does it in a way where it doesn't feel so forced that you start thinking, "Oh, this is getting dumb now." I mean, when you when you start right. talking about the you know the adversity that, he, that he's dealing with, besides the supervillain aspect of the movie, which is obviously going to be there, but again, as we said, you want to have more depth to it than that. So you have the fact that he has trouble making his rent. He's having a problem keeping his job. He's letting down Mary Jane. He's got his aunt extremely upset with him because she's, you know, he he confessed to her about what went on when Uncle Ben was killed. Right. So it's like everything is just collapsing around him. And most of it is because of his secret identity. Because of the responsibility he carries as Spider-Man, it puts him in a position that these other things are failing for him. And that's right. really, to me, that's that's the crux of, of the Spider-Man that Stanley and Steve Ditko gave us in the early 60s. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think no. that really works well. Now, on a negative side of this movie, and, I, you know, we're going to talk a lot more about the positives because I think there's a lot more positives than negatives. Mm-hmm. On the negative sides of this movie, I kind of came up with two things that, that I just okay. really didn't yep. care for. I found the score to be effective overall, but very forgettable. It, it isn't something that, that had any kind of, you know, any kind of lasting power with me at all. Gotcha. So I, I, I felt, you know, and again, it was kind of effective. And I've always said that if the score stands out to you too much, it's probably not doing its job. But I don't know. It just felt too generic to me at times and with Danny Elfman that's surprising yeah um the other thing is 
I never really felt chemistry between Kirsten Dunst and Tobey Maguire. Yeah, I could see that. I would say, for one, about the score, I think I'd, I didn't really compare the original score and this one. It didn't, you know what I felt like it was kind of missing was anything new. Mm-hmm. You know, you think you think from Star Wars to Empire, you know, all these classic themes are added in Empire. And, you know, th- there's a, a growth to the score while maintaining all the original themes you love as well. And you could say the same for a lot of other films. I mean, I guess what I would say is, to me, it just seemed like the exact same score from the first movie. Um, maybe that's part of that, where it didn't seem very stand out to you, because it's very similar, in my opinion, to the first one. Right. There's one part where the score did stand out to me in a positive way. Okay. So I don't even want to make it that I'm totally blasting it. Um and I don't know if this is going to resonate with you as much as it does me, because this is one of my favorite movies. Uh, when Doc Ock is uh, confronting Spider-Man at the or Peter Parker at the uh, bank, okay. There's, there's a. I'm actually now I'm trying to remember if it's then, or if it's when they're on the side of the building. It might be one one or the other. The score becomes very reminiscent of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Whoa. And I have no idea if Danny Elfman had any influence by that movie at all, but that's what I heard. Wow. Now, I can, I can honestly say I have not seen that movie. Is that the part where it's like bump, 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 or something like that? It's, it's more more of, more of a deeper bump, 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 yeah. bump kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I and, know that part we're talking about. And, and it's, you know, it, it's very foreboding. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what we had a little bit in Evan Castellani Frankenstein because you know it was a comedy monster movie. Wow! The, but the monsters are taken entirely serious in that movie, uh, or the creatures. Uh, so the score actually treats it fairly seriously when either Dracula or Frankenstein or the Wolfman are on the screen, and that's it. It brought back a little bit of that to me, and and I saw it as a positive. You know, I'm not saying this as a criticism in any way. I saw it as mm-hmm. a positive. Uh, so the score did have that one moment in there that that I really enjoyed. Um, so let's let's start attacking this one a little bit uh, on some of the things that went on in it. Um, what I, I guess this is a negative, but not negative for this movie. Okay. But I I, I liked the way they were developing Kurt Connors, and I really would have liked to have seen them get to a point where he played the lizard. Yeah, I would agree with that. He's so in the first one too, right? I, I think right. he, yeah, I think he has an appearance in that one. I'm not, okay. sh- I'm not certain about that off the top of my head because I didn't rewatch that. Yeah, uh, didn't and either. he is, I'm... he is a college professor in this, so I'm not, I don't remember for Maybe... sure. Yeah, okay. But I feel like you know, the, it, it, it almost, it's almost reminiscent of you know, in uh, the '89 Batman having Billy D. Williams, uh, you know, play Harvey Dent and then never having, never letting him play Two Face. Right. Right, that's true. Sorry. Yeah, Go ahead. I do think that would have been really cool. I mean, I actually think, you know, that's a, I like that in the Amazing Sp- It's a good use of that, at least from what I recall. It's been a long time since I've seen that one as well. well so yeah, we, to see we, that in the Raimi, the Raimi verse. Yeah, we'll get there one day. The Raimi verse, uh, or whatever you want to call it, the the Raimi Spider Man, I think would have been, would have been very cool indeed. And that's that's a minor, you know, a minor guy in there. Uh, 
you know, we'll hit, hit on some of the more major guys. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson is just so good. Yeah. He's so perfect. And, you know, now they've even brought him back in, in the, uh, in the MCU, MCU mm-hmm. which, which, which is kind of surprising that they would do that, but I'm really happy because, like I said, he's just perfect for the role. Well, and maybe this would be a, a good, I don't want to date the podcast too, too much, but, you know, just here recently, it's been announced that I think it, I don't know if it's finalized or everyone last week or the week before was talking about that Sam Raimi, I guess, is going to do the next Doctor Strange movie. I heard that that was, I didn't hear that it was finalized. I heard okay, that that's, was in, in negotiation. Yeah, well, that's the major rumor, I guess. But, you know, YouTube, film, you know, theorists and Easter egg hunters and stuff are like, oh, that'd make perfect sense. What if Spider-Man's really in some alternate dimension or something at the end of the last Spider-Man movie where, you know, J. Jonah, as portrayed by J.K. Simmons, is back? You know, and that maybe that'll all tie together somehow with Raimi being the director. I decided it is strange that they would reuse a very iconic, you know, even though he's a side character, but I mean a very iconic side character from a previous iteration in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, it is strange to me. So maybe there's going to be some meat to that. I mean, I don't know. That would be cool. Yeah. As, as, I mean, as long as it's done. I mean, I, I think from what I had heard that the next Doctor Strange movie was going to have some sort of multiverse I think it's called in the, the multiverse of madness or something yes, like so, that. So you could, he, they can definitely play with that if they exactly, to. yeah, exactly. Uh, so you yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, and that also is kind of the main idea in the Into the Spider Verse movie as well. Just this idea of, you know, an infinite universe of Spider-Man out there to uh, team up. So that'd be a, a cool to see in live action, maybe one day. Yeah. Yeah. That, well. They did it so well in, in animated form. I don't mm-hmm. really want to do the same thing in live action. That's true. Action. That's but, true. You know, just let's let's. I think they should move on and come up with a new story that'll be just as entertaining. Yeah. Um, I think they hit absolute gold uh, casting Alfred Molina as as Doc Ock. He was you know, per, you know, pitch perfect for the part. Yeah, he is he really good in this. Uh huh. You know, he had everything about him, the look, the the, the acting performance, uh, just, you know, like I said, I don't think you could, I don't think you can get anybody who would fit the role better. Yeah, I mean, he, I and I felt the same way about Willem Dafoe, he brings enough gravity to the character and enough, um, I mean, he brings, he even way more than Willem Dafoe, he's like a good guy trying to do something noble before all this happens to him, and then that, you know, goodness in him or that nobility is trying to fight its way out basically the whole rest of the film. I mean, he and he really portrays that well. Um, and I guess I did. I watched a making of documentary on the Blu-ray I have after I finished the film a couple nights ago, and I guess I didn't realize how many of the scenes where he's standing there and his tentacles are kind of like hovering over his shoulder. I mean, a lot of those are like puppeteered, really kind of, you know, undulating and oscillating around him as he's acting. And I thought, well, I know it's hard to act on a green screen and, you know, with all the CGI stuff that is in movies now. 
I think it would also be hard to give a serious move, you know, acting performance while some, you know, some guy is is making a uh, a mechanical arm wiggle all around your face while you're trying to be serious. So he did a great job. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I also want to compliment how they did with the arms, because one of the things that's always stood out to me was if you you know, and it's not necessarily just with Doc Ock. It's, there's a lot of situations where you might have a, a similar situation where where the physics just don't work out. Uh, if you you take a human body and you put a, a a harness on the back with four arms and two of those arms lift up a car, the body isn't going to be able to take the weight of the car, even though the arms may be strong enough to lift it. But if you watch this one, anytime he did anything that was super strong with the arms, two of them would be doing it, and the other two were bracing themselves and holding the weight. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was like, you know, every time he used the arms, it was well choreographed so that you, you know, so that it made sense from a physical point of view. You know, I, I thought that was, you know, very, very key on this. Uh, in in another part with that, not necessarily the same, excuse me, the same issue, but when they had the fight at the side of the building. Yes. Because everything's happening really, really fast, especially when they're falling and that type of thing. It just struck me as being exceptionally well choreographed. It, it felt like what you read in a comic book. It didn't, even though things are happening really fast, it didn't feel like they rushed through it. You know, like mm-hmm. they, they took their time to present it and you see this battle going on and you understand how it's going on. Uh, you know, not only was it well choreographed, but it was well directed. You had enough establishing shots that you felt, you, you know, you, you kind of always knew where they were. It, you know, you weren't just seeing extreme close-ups and fast cuts, which is one of the things that just makes me crazy when they do that in movies. Yeah, no doubt. I and I actually feel like the special effects held up very well, you know, all things considered. Uh in that whole side of the with Aunt May leaving the bank, the side of the building battle. Yeah, it's very it's all in broad daylight and I feel like it it looks I feel I still think it looks great. I don't know. Yeah. I don't look at it and feel like it looks dated. Yeah, I would agree. And then, you know, just more with the uh Otto Octavius character, I almost feel like he's better developed in here than he was in the comics, which is surprising since he's had so much comic time, you know, over the years. But, you know, giving him a, a, a wife. Yeah. And casting someone who he did seem to have a subtle chemistry with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, giving him that whole backstory, but at the same time showing his hubris when, you know, like when things are starting to go wrong and he's, oh, no, it'll stabilize. I've got this. Right. That kind of thing. Uh, you know, he, he just felt so three-dimensional. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's that's huge. That that makes a big difference. You know, we're talking about just, you know, having more than just action sequences in these movies, having actual, you know, characterization and, and depth to it and, and things going on that, you know, add to the story, and, and it, it's all there in here. Uh, I would totally agree with that, yeah. I mean, we're gonna we're, we're agreeing a lot, which is okay, because I think we both like this movie a lot, but yeah, he's he is very, very strong in the film. Um, I, I guess I also like that they came up, I, I thought it was very clever how they made it so that the arms had, like, I guess, artificial intelligence, 
Mm-hmm. And so once that inhibitor chip or whatever was broken from the accident, that he was constantly battling with himself and the, like, he was struggling with the robot arms the entire time. I just, I thought that was a cool twist on it as well. He almost felt like he had a multiple personality disorder. Yes, yes. And and there was one thing, you know, just, just a, to me, a clever piece of writing. Uh, when he's working with the Tridium, you know, with the audience watching and everything, in the, in the scene when his wife gets killed, uh, before he loses control of it, he's got the tentacle with, you know, I guess the, I don't even know what you'd call the claw part of it, uh, kind of holding the reaction in place. Mm-hmm. And he says, he, he uses the word or the line, something to the effect of the power of the sun in the palm of my hand. So the palm of his hand is the is the tentacle? Yeah, yeah. Like you know, that was that wasn't lost on me, and I thought it was just really well written as far as that goes. Well, now that you've mentioned the the death of the wife, and we can continue going through all the characters, sure. you know, if you'd like. But just speaking about the death of the wife, that's a pretty gruesome death she she goes through with all the glass flying at her like that. But that was a, I feel like the Raimi like. Like I said, from the Evil Dead, Raimi was amped up in this volume much more so than than in the first film. Did you get that sense in terms of, um, you know, there's like several, especially well, I don't know how to describe. There's several very like slapstick kind of comedy moments, and then of course the whole uh, after the accident when they're trying to remove his arms and you know, his arms go on the murder spree, killing the whole surgery team. Mm-hmm. I just feel like in this film, the 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 zany Raimi, or however you'd want to describe him, is, is there in spades. I mean, we have the whole raindrops keep falling on my head sequence. We have, there's just several throughout the film, basically. The Bruce Campbell. The Bruce Campbell stuff, the, the Peter jumping off the, you know, trying to get his powers back and crashing, you know, you know, off the cars, like, you know, like, like the Roadrunner, or I mean, like Wile E. Coyote. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, he, he kind of has cranked it up to 11. The Landlord, there's just a lot more humor, I guess is what I'm saying, and a lot of it's even like the kind of zany humor of of Sam Raimi that he's kind of known for, so... Mm-hmm. And, I, and I didn't mind that, though. I didn't mind that, because it, it, I think this film, I mean... I don't know. I feel like Peter gets crapped on so much is that if you don't have that levity, it almost might get a little dark, you know? I mean, well, the key is balancing it out. And I think he did. I think they did a good job in this movie of balancing it. You have, have enough lighthearted moments to keep it from feeling, you know, you don't want it to be depressing. Uh, Right. You know, and you know, and you don't want it to be terrifying either, but you, you know, and I think it speaks to the quality of the direction and the editing that, the scene when Rosie dies, it's, you know, viewed as us, viewed by us as being gruesome, and yet we don't see it at all. That's all, true. All that we is, see is, you know, true. her, in, your her mind's in position, yeah. and then you see the glass breaking and coming towards her, you hear her screaming, but you never see it hit her, and like you said, it's in the mind's eye, which is, I, I think, a, you know, a directorial triumph to do that. Yeah. The scene in the hospital, however, is a little bit more openly brutal. 
Uh, and the only question about, I have about that, because I still think it's well done, is if you're trying to make a movie here for all audiences, that's going to pretty much cut out your very young audience right there. Yeah. Yeah, and even then, though, there's a lot of, like... I mean, there's people getting tossed around, but any of the most worst parts, you know, it kind of cuts away quickly or, you know, is implied more than shown. I mean, or is done in shadow, you know, on the wall. I mean, there's all kinds of ways he does it in that scene. But, yeah, no, I would agree with that. That's It's very intense. But, yeah, and, that's, and I hope that didn't come across, across necessarily as a criticism because I, I laughed out loud at a, a few of the parts. I mean... Uh, J.K. Simmons has, I mean, he has some moments in the film, the part where, I'm trying to think which, what was the exact line he said, where he kind of pauses and then just starts laughing. I think it's something Peter said to him about getting no, paid. He or he for an advance. Advance, yeah, yeah, yeah. That That's a great part. The best one, though, is when Mary Jane gets engaged to the son and JK just like leans his head in or maybe that's when he's no, 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 no. Sorry. Sorry. It's when she leaves him at the altar and it's like, you know, all you see is the, the stage or the, like the altar, I guess. And then at the very, you know, extreme forefront, his head just peeks in as he's looking down the aisle. I just laughed out loud. I mean, there's, there's lots of good humor in the movie. And like you said, I do, I do think it, 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 helps uh, levy the seriousness of really Peter and Doc Ock's plot in this film. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with all of that. Yeah. Uh, what, did you, what did you think of the characterization of Harry in this movie? Well, I think it's true to the character that we meet in the first film in that I think we said something along the lines of he seemed to be the kind of son who you know, didn't get the affection he wanted from his father and didn't get the kind of love he needed and was always trying to impress him, et cetera, et cetera. And he's obviously trying, he's a tryhard. I mean, he's trying very hard to live up to that with funding Octavius's plan. Mm -hmm. And I also, I feel like he's, I don't know. It's a little extreme how he goes into like the, like, we got to kill, I got to kill Spider-Man becomes obsessive for him. I mean, obviously Peter being involved with the whole accident at, at, you know, Octavius's, uh, experiment kind of leads him in that way. But he gets, I just feel like it kind of goes from zero to 60 on the Spider-Man side. You know, it's not a slow burn. It's like, you know, he becomes drunkenly obsessive with getting Spider-Man, you know, right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, there's not much subtlety no. to the performance as far as that goes. But it does, you know, from a psychological point of view, it makes sense, I guess, that you know he was always seeking his father's love. He can't get it now because his father's dead, and he blames Spider-Man even though he should know better. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that all works well. Rings and true, then I, right? And then I, I also feel like his funding of Otto Octavius – you know, looking to fund and get the Pulitzer Prize and or the Nobel Prize rather, uh, like that that rings true too because it's almost like he's trying to impress his father with how he's running the company now. Right. Like that that all see makes sense to me. 
you know, again, I, I don't think there's a lot of subtlety to the performance, but I also don't think it's written in a subtle way. So I, I'm not going to necessarily blame James Franco for not being subtle about it. Uh, I, I think as written, it calls for him to be, you know, very openly stating uh, every, you know, pretty much everything that's going on. But uh, is his part, you know, I, I don't think he has that much screen time, really. Uh, so I think, you know, in a movie that's, you know, running over two hours, I think sometimes you had to get it by by having him stated. Unless sure. you wanted to, uh, you know, to give him an extra five or six minutes of screen time to, to be more subtle about it. And I don't think that necessarily would have helped the pacing of the film itself. Right. Well, and, you know, I actually, it's, and it was a throwback to the first film, but the the brief cameo from Willem Dafoe in this film that leads to Harry discovering, you know, the goblin lair, whatever you want to call it. Um, I thought that was actually really well done and, and very good. And I can remember thinking as he found that, like, you know, holy moly, I can't wait to see Spider-Man 3 to see what becomes of this whole situation now. You know, they did leave me in a way that wanted more of that story. So I guess in that way it was, it was successful. Yeah, and, you know, it, it did... It, you know, you had, enough, you had enough closure in this movie, but you also had enough subplots that were going to linger on into the next one. And we'll talk more about the next one when we get there. I don't want to sure. spend time on that sure. yet, because I think that one... I think that one has pluses and minuses, and I think sometimes they get overblown. Uh, so we'll talk about that next time around, sure. and, and I'm sure we'll have some good conversations on that. Uh, Rosemary Harris is Aunt May. Mm-hmm. I would say, in my opinion, she is as close of a performance to what we got in the comic books, at least you know in the earlier days of Aunt May, than anyone we've seen in the role. I, I've said many times that I always felt that Aunt May and Uncle Ben were portrayed in the comics as being too old. That, you know, teenagers generally don't have parents or aunts and uncles who are surrogate parents who are in their 70s. Uh, you know, most, most teenagers, their parents are in their 40s or their 50s. So you would expect the surrogate parents to be somewhere around there. And they've kind of gone that way now with Marissa Tomei in the role of Aunt May. Mm-hmm. But the way the comics presented it through the years, Aunt May was much, much older. And Rosemary Harris looks effectively like she's... She doesn't look as frail as Aunt May was as portrayed in the comics, but that's almost impossible to do. Right. Uh, but she, she definitely you know seems to be contemporary age-wise with that. And... You know, all that said, I like I like the way she was written and performed in this because, to me, she knows Peter Spider-Man. The way she the way the way the part was written, I, I have no doubt in my mind she knows. I would agree with that. I I um, even in the trailer because I think I haven't watched a trailer in a while. But I think the trailer has that line that she says to him about, you know, there's a hero in all of us. And I feel like that whole speech she gives him when they kind of reconcile two-thirds of the way through the film, you know, is basically, you are Spider-Man, you need to be Spider-Man. I mean, in so many words. Yeah. Uh, but I, and I, and I love that part. I feel like that the, she, 
I feel like they have a good, not chemistry, but a good rapport in terms of, like, I feel like she's very good in that role in terms of being the maternal, you know, encouraging person for him. So yeah, And the, the scene when he lets her know what happened with Uncle mm-hmm. Ben, you know, clearly she's devastated by it. Mm-hmm. She's very, very upset, but true to the character, as I understand Aunt May, she doesn't start to freak out. She doesn't, you know, she she basically walks away because she doesn't want to say or do something that she's going to regret. Yeah. You know, it's it's not that she's not, it's not that she's infallible and, you know, doesn't have these emotions that she might regret at some point, but she's wise enough to rein them in when she has to and then when she next talks to Peter it's after she's had a chance to process it and she can give him some sage advice so yes. I, I think that was all really well played out so I yeah. think the only other significant characters that we haven't discussed at any length really are Mary Jane and John Jameson and John is you know he he's kind of more two dimensional. We don't get a lot of him, but I wonder if they weren't, you know, thinking, you know, if this this was going to be a long term franchise that they might go with the Man Wolf at some point. I don't, yes. I don't, I don't know if that was in the planning stages or not. I don't know that either. Um, he's very, you know, I think he has a, few, I mean, he only has a few lines, but yeah, he he's not much. He's more of just a you know, a foil for Peter when it comes to Mary Jane more than anything else. I feel like she, while I would agree with you that she and Tobey Maguire don't necessarily have great chemistry, I think she did a pretty good job of portraying the frustration of... Okay, let me say this. I felt like at the end of the last movie, she had an inkling or a sense that he was actually Spider-Man. This one, I don't necessarily get the sense that she thinks he's Spider-Man, but she does a good job of portraying, I guess, just the hurt from some, the truth that she does know, which is that Peter loves her but won't admit it or act on it. You know, yeah, so the truth that she knows that he won't speak about isn't that he's Spider-Man, it's his feelings for her, but she does a good job, I feel like, of of portraying that. And And... He kind of does an about face on her where he's lobbying when, you know, when he thinks he isn't going to be Spider-Man anymore. And mm-hmm. I guess we should probably talk about that in a moment. Because mm-hmm. that, that's a major plot device in this. But when he thinks he's not going to be Spider-Man and he can have the freedom to do, you know, to live the life he wants to, he kind of throws out some feelers to see if she's willing to go that way. And she... Yeah. She rejects him on that until she has a chance to think about it, and then she comes back to him, but by then he's now back in the Spider-Man role, yep. not, not, you know, not able to, to give that up any longer, so he has to once again reject her. So yep. while he knows the reasoning behind all of this, she's got to be confused as hell as to what he's doing. Yeah, she's whiplash. I mean, you can see it on her face. I, and to me, that whole back and forth, back and forth, you know, has just leaned at that point so heavily into the soap opera, you know, tendency of those Marvel comics from back then. I mean, 
at least for Spider-Man, just with his all of his different problems. But the does he love me? Does he not love me? You know, I think last last time we recorded, I said I could, you know, see her as like a John Romita cover, you know, crying about why Peter doesn't love me anymore or whatever. And I feel like you know they really leaned into that in that in that whole subplot, I guess. Yeah. Definitely. But what? Let me ask you. You're the long time. Obviously, you're the you're the long time. Uh, all kinds of comics, but especially like you know Marvel comics from this era. What do you think about? Because it's a loose adaption of the Spider-Man No More story. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? What did you think of that? I guess when you saw that. Oh, especially when they show the uh, the costume in the garbage, which yeah, you know, of course they're recreating the cover of issue number fifty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I was geeking out at that moment. Uh, and I also liked the, the, the storyline, you know, the whole loss of his powers, which is based on his own lack of confidence or lack of, uh, certainty of what he should be doing. Uh, you know, it's, it's totally psychological at that point. There's no, there's no physical reason for him to lose his powers. Yeah. And I just think it's kind of cool that they that they did it that way. And they don't dwell on it all that long. They don't tell you exactly how. Because the point where he decides he's going to be Spider-Man again is when he jumps off the building and he you know, crashes down to the street and nearly kills himself. Mm-hmm. So it isn't, okay, he decided he's going to be Spider-Man again, so his powers are, are fine. So they don't really dwell on it enough to say, okay, this is why he has them again. But I don't think they need to. Yeah. I think it, it just kind of plays along. Uh, and, you know, we have that uh, you know kind of dream sequence with Uncle Ben. Yes. And that kind of goes into his psyche a little bit about, you know, what he's doing, why he's doing it. So I, I think, you know, again, not to be too, too repetitive that we keep saying the same thing, but it's just giving us these character moments that you understand kind of without really saying it, you know, overtly why his powers aren't working. You understand why he wants to lead his life without being Spider-Man, but then you also understand why he needs to go back to it, and you accept the fact that his powers come back. Yeah, well, so while you're saying that, I totally agree. I do like that better than, say, how they did the same kind of story for a very similar reason in Superman 2. So that's I have that specifically in my notes. <laughs> okay, good. Well, and you can elaborate on that then. But I mean, I like this way of doing it better than some sort of contrivance like you have in Superman 2, although I love Superman 2 as well. And it works in that context better than, you know, probably would here, obviously. But there is no like whammy jammy where Spider-Man loses his powers and then gets them back. I like that it. You know, I like that it's all in his head, basically, like you were saying. Yeah, and I just just to elaborate in my notes, I just put that the Uncle Ben dream sequence reminded me of Superman with either Jor-El or Lara, depending on which version of Superman to mm-hmm. watch. Yep. Uh, and and you know his own crisis of uh, conscience and all of that. Uh, one of the things though that didn't ring true, and I guess it's another minor criticism, and it's kind okay. of nitpicky. 
but when he first kind of comes to grips with, okay, I'm not going to be Spider-Man anymore, he's walking down the street and there's a mugging going on, and he kind of shrugs his shoulders knowing that he can't do anything about it, and he walks away almost happy. Uh, yeah. That didn't feel right because yeah. Peter Parker that we know is a hero whether or not he has superpowers. He's right. not the kind of guy who would walk away and say, oh, sucks for them when somebody's getting mugged. He would, at a minimum, seek to call the police or something to get help over there. Right. Even if, he, even if he's not in a position where he has the physical capability of interceding. He, he's, a super, he's, a, he's a hero the way that non-superpowered Steve Rogers is a hero. Right. And I, and I agree with that characterization. I guess – and I – now that you say it, I, I agree with what you're saying. I had that didn't stick out to me as directly uh, as a miss. And yeah, I can see what you're saying. I mean, I think we're just supposed to get the idea that you know he's had so many, he's taken so many losses <laughs> at the expense of being Spider-Man that he just isn't going to anymore. I mean, that's that's kind of that what that scene is telling me, but yeah, I could see where that, you know, doesn't quite fit with the character of who Peter is with or without his powers. And then we move on to the scene with the fire in the building where he shows that he is a hero, even without yeah. his superpowers. Yep. And, you know, he, he goes into a burning building to, you know, to rescue someone, uh, even though he's got no particular ability more than anyone else. So, you know, they do they do redeem him in that way, mm -hmm. but just the initial failure on his part to act just fell a little short for me or it didn't seem in character correctly for me. Sure. But again, well, I even, think that's a little bit of a nitpick. I don't think yeah. you know, it's, it's not a major, major plot point there. Sure. Well, and even that scene with the fire, which that's a, that's a very, for, for one, it's... That's when I. That's the scene I think where I realized, man, this is a lot like the original, the, the 2002 Spider-Man film, because there's a whole scene where he saves someone in a fire in that in that movie. Um, but that that's a very, for one, that's a very exciting scene, you know, for because the stakes are so high because he doesn't have his powers. Him running through the fire is is really exciting. Two, they immediately temper that though with the fireman coming up and coming up to him afterwards and saying that. You know, but someone died on the fourth floor or something like that. Someone didn't get out. You know, they're even though it's redeeming him, it is still putting in stark relief what's happening because he's not Spider Man. And and I think that's I think that's good writing. I, I also think it, it tells you that no matter what you do you can't save everybody. Yeah, that's true. You that's know, true too. You know, there's only so much you can do, but you know that everyone should do what they can, what's in their power to to do to help others. But you know, it, it, you can't expect to change the world, I guess. Right. Uh, then I guess you know the only other uh, point to, to make here. Well, I guess two other things that I have in my notes just to mention are one that ultimately. Otto Octavius makes a noble sacrifice so that he wins that internal struggle he's having with the uh, the AI of his uh, tentacles. Mm -hmm. And I like that they did that. It may be just a 
touch cliche, but it still felt good and it felt like it, you know, it, it you know, they, they showed us him as being a pretty good man early on. And it's nice to feel that that wasn't totally lost. No, I would agree with that. At least for me, it felt that way. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I, um, the only thing, the only critique I would have with that, and it's the same thing I think we said last time, is unfortunately just this mode of you have these great villains, great actors, great performances, and you have to kill them off in the, in the final, you know, battle. I mean, it'd be really cool if, if, even if he never came back, there was at least, a chance he could, you know, and that's that's one thing they do change in a later Spider-Man film, I think, for the better. Um, so while yes, I I agree with you, like his his noble, and he actually over, I mean he, I mean it's a little ludicrous him talking to his his self-aware mechanical arms, but uh, it was cool how he he kind of collapses everything down, you know, to like almost like a Samson type moment uh, to to kind of save the city from the from the uh experiments or whatever but it's fun some i had one more point i guess i wanted to see what you thought about this so as i'm watching the movie and i and i think it is in stark relief to let's say the current marvel like especially the last phase of the marvel cinematic universe where it's just over the top action in almost every one of those films and just so much going on. There were long stretches of this film that were, I don't want to say slow, but I mean purposeful and, you know, it had lots of room to breathe. And the action, I would put the action in this film. We haven't even talked about the train battle, but that's got to be one of the best action set pieces in a superhero movie ever. And you would put the action and could compare it to any of the modern superhero movies, I think favorably, or it would stand up with them as well. But that is just punctuating a long character drama, basically. I mean, it's it's all about Peter and his trial. And I don't necessarily think you get that from a lot of the more current superhero movies. I don't know what you think about that, but it's just it just feels like a different style altogether. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. Uh, in fact, you know how, how I was saying that I hadn't watched this in a while mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure how it was going to hold up. And that was largely because as I thought about it, I was thinking, you know, except for the train sequence, there's not a lot of really good action sequences in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like I, w- I was selling it short or I was selling myself short that, you know, I need action sequences to enjoy a, a comic movie. First of all, the action sequences are well done, and there's more than, more than just the train sequence anyway. But, yes. you know, the bottom line is the reason this movie is the success that it is isn't because of the action sequences. It's because of the scenes that develop those action sequences before we get them. So, you know, it's kind of the chicken or the egg thing, but... It's, you know, the action sequences are good because you start to care and you care because you have the character moments. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So we um, should talk about about the train sequence for a minute, because 
it really is one of the sillier things in the movie when you think about it. Uh, but it works despite yeah. that. It, it's I think if you if you sit and you really look at it carefully, there's a lot of things that just don't make sense that happen in that one from either a physical or a psychological point of view. But it still works and the sequence is very well done as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I guess I always thought, I mean, just the the way they're moving across the top side, inside, outside, just the way they're moving around is so dynamic but still so i mean you can see everything and and you're just following it the whole way it is a kind of you know i said looney tunes earlier in regards to how Raimi did that scene in the hospital but there's a degree of that too when peter gets in the front of the train and puts his legs down to try and stop it you know uh, it's it's it is ridiculous in some way but i guess what i always you know what always and it's and it's similar to a scene in the first one as well, but I think it's done better in this. It always moved me for some reason when he stops the train but becomes unconscious. How the people care for him in that brief moment, you know, he's just a kid, you know, and they carry his like limp form from the front of the train into the into the car with them. For whatever reason, that that kind of made that whole scene for me. I don't know what, what you thought about that, but. Um, it, it didn't ring totally true to me. Okay. Uh, it just seemed like a little bit much that all these people are going to see him without his mask, and you know nobody's you know it's oh we'll never tell. I don't know. It just seemed like a little <laughs> bit much. But it still felt good watching it that way. And just yeah. just as a side point, I've taken trains in New York for uh-huh. many many years, and I don't uh-huh. think I've, I don't think I've ever seen the line that this is occurring on. Well, they shot all this part in Chicago. (laughs) Yeah, they shot all this part in Chicago. I was actually reading on that earlier. They did shoot a lot in New York, and they did a lot of stage work in L.A., but I think all the train stuff was filmed in Chicago. Yeah, we we, there are L tracks in uh, Brooklyn and in the Bronx, but none none that look quite like what we see in this movie. And that's okay. That's That's this movie. that's, That's just how movies are. Yeah, exactly, and I don't think it's the, I don't think it's one of the biggest sins in in my opinion, unless unless you're trying to present something where you're saying, oh, this is really what it is, you know. But well, and I think Ramey, and it's and it goes to the writing as well. They what you were just saying about you know, there is a little maybe it's a little saccharine or maybe it's just a little silly how they're treating him, and then how they all are like, well, if you want him, you're gonna have to come through us, which you think, ooh, that sounds so brave. But then Doc Ock, you know, just literally sweeps the entire train car out of the way to get to Spider-Man. You know, it's, it's I, also reminiscent of the scene at the end of uh, Spy- the first Spider-Man when it is, when, when it is uh, on the uh, the train on the bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, um, it's almost like a, it's almost like the filmmakers are realizing that it's a little silly what they're trying to do, even if it's in the best intention when you're face-to-face with this supervillain that he could kill you all if he wanted and how easily he sweeps them away, it, it kind of makes that point to me at least. But, yeah, uh, no, that's true. And, yeah. It, it, and he almost, like, w- when they say that and he says, okay, he's kind of almost laughing as he says uh-huh, it. Uh-huh. It's he like, does, you know, yeah. he, he's not even viewing this as, as an issue. It's like, yeah, whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... So it's, it's worth mentioning that this movie was made on a budget of about $200 million. And the box office return, and I'm not sure if this is worldwide or not, but uh, 2004 would be before worldwide was quite the same consideration that it is now. Uh, but the return on it was $789 million, so almost four times its budget, which is a tremendous success. Yeah. We uh, last last for the last one we talked about the kind of the uh, the adjusted gross and what that meant for the original film, which I think I what I, I believe I saw came in at number forty. And actually, when I was looking this time to see the all-time adjusted gross, uh, the original film was moved up to thirty-nine. So I'm not sure exactly how that came to be. Maybe just with the way they calculate inflation and all that, they, it just helped it creep up a little bit. But this one's number 65 all time with an adjusted gross. So that's still very, very good. And um, I was reading it said some, I believe, what was I just reading? I think it did something like the opening weekend set some sort of record that wasn't surpassed until uh, Revenge of the Sith came out the following year. So uh, the first the first day gross that's what it was the very the first day initial day gross was only surpassed by Star Wars Episode Three Revenge of the Sith a year later. Hmm. So still very 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 successful and you know it's so great when you have a film that is popular with you know to this degree with the people but also critically well received and this film apparently was very critically well received as well um there's a quote here from roger ebert who had given the first film only two and a half stars but he gave spider-man 2 a perfect four out of four calling it the best superhero movie since the modern genre was launched with superman in 1978 and he praised the film for effortlessly combining special effects and a human story keeping its parallel plots alive and moving and I think that's a very good summation of this film. It is a very human story. I mean, it, that's what I think I was trying to articulate in so many words a few moments ago that maybe compared to some of the MCU movies, for example, it's just this was a very human story for Peter. And that's that's why I do feel like Maguire kind of personifies that really well. Um, so, yeah. All right. So. I think that probably leads us to the big question then. Oh boy. And I'm going to let you go first on it. Is it yours? Can, well, can you go over one more time the the scale for me? Sure. Well, I I've I've now expanded You the have scale a way to, to phrase it that I that I like and I'd like to hear it again. <laughs> okay. Well, ranking it as yours, you're saying it's a nearly perfect movie, an all-time classic. Uh, you know, succeeds in almost every way. Jaws 2, solid movie, worthy of multiple rewatchings, but, you know, not quite to that classic level. Jaws 3, watchable, but nothing special. Jaws 4 is a bad movie, and I've since added a Jaws 5 category, which is a movie so bad that you like it. Ooh. Well, the, this is not that movie, obviously, but I'd like to, I'd like to hear what some of the Jaws 5 movies were. 
if there's been any like that so far. Well, I, I've I've only added that so recently that there hasn't been one yet. Oh, nice. Uh, but I, I I would say Jaws four is almost a Jaws five <laughs> because Jaws four is just so silly and stupid that I laugh when I see it. So it's enjoyable because it's so bad. You know what's so funny? I know maybe I said this last time or maybe I didn't. I was a Jaws junkie as a kid. I loved all the movies and I even loved. Four, for some reason as a kid, I don't know why, I just really liked it, even though it makes no sense. It does make no sense. But anyhow, not, not, we're not talking about Jaws on Is It Jaws. I'm actually going to say this is Jaws to me. This is a, an all-time classic, uh, and I don't want to like just categorize it in its genre or something like that. But in its genre, which is a huge genre now, I still feel like it really holds up. And uh, um, for all the reasons we've said, you know, the the good the good writing, the good acting, the human story mixed with the the superhero elements of it, um, I do feel like this one made it to the Jaws level for me. Yeah, I kind of went back and forth on it, and you know, it's like I wanted to give it a Jaws, but I also kind of started thinking, was well, is it a Jaws two? Uh, you know, I, I went into the nitpicks that we talked about, and ultimately I came back to, yeah, I think this movie really does, despite some nitpicks, I think it succeeds on every level. Uh, we've had seven live-action, seven? Yeah, seven live-action Spider-Man movies. Am I getting that right? Two of these. No, three of these. Yeah, two with uh, Andrew Garfield and two with... Uh, yes, yes. So we, we have seven live-action Sp- Spider-Man movies, and I'm going to tell you even though we've only reviewed one before this, this is my favorite of the seven. Uh, and, and I, you know, they all have some merit as far as I'm concerned, but this, this is the one that, that stands out to me as being the best one. And I was very happy to watch it and see that after a number of years, it's still holding up as well as it is. Uh, so I, I think it really does hit on all levels. I still think it is one of the movies when, when, you know, if we are talking about the genre, it's one of the benchmark movies of that genre. And it's one of the ones that I'm still going to compare every movie to. So I'm going to rank it as a Jaws. Well, that's, that's kind of what I was, that's what I was saying. I didn't want to, I don't know, pigeonhole it by saying, well, for a superhero movie, it's an all time classic. So yes. And that's it. But being the one that you would compare, all these future movies too, I think that kind of speaks for itself as as to its classic status. It's it's created its own like a new benchmark for them mm-hmm. in its own way. Uh, yeah. And there are others that you know that that hit that level. I'm not going to try and say it's the only one, but uh, you know it's it's in it's in very good company. Put it that way. Do you have a spreadsheet where you've kept all of what got ranked? At no, what I, level? I kind of regret that I haven't done that. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, we'll have to. Maybe we can crowdsource that. Yeah, but, if, uh, if listeners want to put that together for me, I'd love to. See, I'd that love would to be awesome. See. Yeah, uh, I'd like to I, see that as well. I maybe, sh- I maybe we should. That's okay. We can. We'll, we'll get it done. We'll. we'll there, there's people out there that'll help you with that. I know there. Are, there are. So, well, thank you, Paul, for having me on to talk about this great movie. Okay, uh, thanks it's funny. for coming on and making the time to do it because I know oh, it yeah. isn't easy. Oh yeah, well, um, you know, I've had the Blu-ray set sitting on top of the TV stand here, and my oldest son has been begging me to watch it. And I actually think 
he would really like really like uh, these films. So I think we'll probably be rewatching soon with him. So now how old is your oldest at this point? He's nine. He's he turned nine in November, so he's like nine and a third. Yeah, not that I get to make these decisions for your family, but I'm thinking uh-huh. he's, I'm thinking he's hitting the age. Yeah, yeah, I agree. No, I agree. And like you said, that part with uh, him in the hospital might be a little scary, but I I don't know. I think I think he can handle it. This was 2004, so my son was like seven, I think, when he first saw this. And and he, I expected this the hospital scene to be too intense for him, but he, he he was fine with it. Didn't bother him in the slightest. But every kid has their own sensibilities, and every parent needs to decide based on their own child's sure, you know, needs and you know, personal uh, reactions to things. So whatever you think is best. Oh yeah, 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 and it's even different in between kids in the same family. You know what mm-hmm. one kid can handle is different from the other, and you know how they respond to things is always different. So yeah, yeah, I agree totally. Yep. So thanks again for making the time, and uh, this was fun. Yeah, we're gonna well, we're, we're not gonna wait, uh, you know, a year and a half before we do uh, Spider-Man. I agree. Three. I agree. We're going to get on it sooner than that, so we'll we'll figure that out here shortly. But thanks again for having me on, and uh, you know, enjoy the show a lot. Great, thank you, and thanks everybody for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks. All the things you've been thinking about, Peter, make me sad. Can't you understand? I'm in love with Mary Jane. Peter, all the times we've talked of honesty, fairness, justice. Out of those times, I counted on you to have the courage to take those dreams out into the world. I can't live your dreams anymore. I want a life of my own. You've been given a gift, Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. Take my hand, son. No, Uncle Ben. I'm just Peter Parker. I'm Spider-Man. No more. No more.